Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Andy Wood. I'm joined by Matt Kirsten. Hey, we're not in the backyard. No, no, <laughs> we're, we're not. <laughs> so we're very different. We're far better. Far. As the Brits would say, we are somewhere far better. Far better. Much way, way better. better. Way better. <laughs> we're joined by, by Johan Hari, who we worked out, we were working out before the show that we've half met many times over about 10, 15 years yeah. through mu- numerous mutual friends, but never actually hung out for any particular time. If this, what I'm saying, if this was a Robert Altman film, we would be like intersecting stories where we never quite cross. Never quite. Exactly. Um, and right now on Bill Maher's dime, <laughs> we're currently in the Four Seasons Beverly Hills. I'm so glad you pointed out that it's not like, I don't want to sound like a swanky wanker who stays in this hotel. <laughs> I stayed in an Airbnb in Santa Monica that was definitely not like this before I came to this hotel. So I would like to point how out many, that. How many... Four seasons nights do you get for promoting a book on... <laughs> Actually, you're meant to get one, but I somehow managed to wrangle four. I don't quite understand how that happened. Whoa, but good luck. They are super nice, the people who work for him. That's great. Yeah, this is... Uh, I think this might be the nicest hotel I've been in. Oh. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, what's, is this, this is four star, obviously. It's four seasons. It must be four star. Right? No, I, think, I think it's four seasons and five stars. I think. Oh, is five star the highest ranking? I of- don't really know. I think so. I don't uh, know what the ranking system of hotels is. Yeah. The nicest hotel I've ever been in when I did a gig in Jakarta and I've never felt worse being in a nice hotel because like Jakarta is hellish like everything around is freaking awful like it's just this clogged up uh, fairly oppressive feeling city and we were in like easily the nicest hotel I've ever been but you had to go through like airport style security to get into the hotel Oh, like you're the car got they'd like they make you open the boot of the car Mm. trunk trunk to the Americans Uh, (laughs) and uh I go through like a basic like not a full like frisk down but like more like if you go into a concert like kind of metal detector or whatever and but then the hotel was just the room was ridiculous it had various panels that controlled all sorts of things like the bath had its own pillow that was just like the bath pillow uh it is the kind of place where whenever you put your foot down, you somehow find yourself wearing slippers. Like, like <laughs> slippers just appeared on you. But don't you find like, the weird thing about luxury hotels, and I only stay in them when other people are paying, but it's actually, they're weirdly dissatisfying. Firstly, everyone is really fucking miserable. If you look around, oh, yeah, people yeah, no are one's not happy. cheerful yeah. in luxury yeah. hotels. Partly, I was thinking about why this is, right? I was looking at people yesterday. I think it's partly, it's something about, because it's impossible to have uh, an authentic interaction with anyone in a hotel like this. So the staff are super nice to you. Everyone remembers. It's, re- it's almost sinister because everyone says, hello, Mr. Hari. They like know your name, right? And they're really nice. And you kind of just, you just want to go and you try to say to them like, how's your day going? And they go, I'm having a great day. <laughs> and you just kind of want to go, no, it's okay. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. You can just tell me honestly. You're having it's a like good here, day. here in Disney. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, if you drop the smile for a second, do you get sacked? Like, exactly. You, you feel like you're in an exploitative relationship with people who are kind of forced to be nice to you. <laughs> it's like a weird, it's a very weird. So the luxury people, the kind of, the other guests are miserable fuckers because they're the kind of people who are so greedy. They've made enough money to stay in a place like this. And the staff are miserable because they're, in this kind of forced manic jollity, which is actually very uncomfortable well, to interact with. Also, generally, the nicer the hotel, the more they charge you for things and the more they rip you up. Like some, yeah, the Wi-Fi thing. Yeah, somehow the Wi-Fi like, thing is the craziest. Yeah, it drives me because I travel a lot, and somehow, um, 
like a two-star hotel that's charging $40 a night can afford to provide free high-speed internet for everyone. But somehow, like a hotel room that's $300 a night, they can't quite scrape together the Wi-Fi fees out of that. Like somehow the Wi-Fi costs them an extra $15 a day to provide. I feel like we've actually talked about this on the podcast and then had someone write in and say, well, obviously it's because the travelers are business. They can afford to expense it. So it all makes sense. I'm like, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I know. I get why. Like yeah. it's supply and demand. Yeah. They can af- they charge what they reckon they can get away with charging. But, yeah. it's a- but it always, ma- always makes me think of that study. Um, I'm trying to remember where it was done. Uh, George Monbiot, uh, the Guardian journalist, wrote a really good column about it once. I always think of it when I'm in a place like this. That it was a study that, if I remember rightly... Uh, I might get some of the details wrong, but basically what they did, a social psychologist gets a load of people to describe an emotional experience in their life and says, don't like be overt in your facial reactions, don't like burst into tears or beam, but just describe it honestly. And they film that and it can be anything from joy to misery, whatever. Yeah. And then they show those videos to a, a range of Americans. And what they found is the further up the income scale you go, the less people were able to read the emotion, to actually tell what the emotions of the person um, speaking was feeling, what the emotions were. Uh, so to the, by the time you got to the really rich people, they were almost autistic. They just couldn't <laughs> tell what the people thought. And it's when I come to a place like this that you realise why. Because I always think this, we used to see Mitt Romney out on the campaign trail and he'd interact with an ordinary voter and there'd be some excruciating moment where, do you remember when that woman said to him, I'm unemployed, and she was talking about how hard it was? And he said, oh, I know exactly how you feel. I'm unemployed too. You know, and it was just like... Because <laughs> uh, he had you, quit being a senator to run for president. Like, yeah, 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 but you suddenly realised, like... Yeah, I was I was unemployed between uh, like Saturday and Sunday, <laughs> and then like I got I got my job again like Monday to Friday, and then I become unemployed again. Yeah, so. where you're virtually homeless. The, but you suddenly realise why? Like, so if you're yeah, we're, Andy and I are homeless right now. While we're, <laughs> <laughs> then we we'll go back to our homes. But exactly. if you if you're a waitress working in an IHOP, we're in Beverly Hills. There's probably not an IHOP very near here. But if you're the nearest IHOP to here, right? If you're an waitress working there, if you can't read people's emotions, you're going to have a real problem, right? You're going to have an income problem. You're going you have to make yourself. You have to use that muscle of reading people's emotions a lot. If you're Mitt Romney, you grew up. Your dad's like the you know the mega rich governor of governor of uh, his state and you know obviously the you know ran the main car company in the united states Mitt romney's never had to read people's emotions right whatever he did there was always someone smiling like the staff of this hotel going hi mr romney we're so glad to see you this emotion this facial expression means they're happy to see me and does does this one and this one exactly he never and i and i feel myself almost becoming colder when i'm in place the longer i'm in a place like this yeah. the colder i get it, it actually deprives you of ordinary social signals yeah well it's yeah it's true. also I, uh, I think they've also done studies that general on charity and people who are generally the most charitable are the ones who are nearest in yeah. wealth to the people who need the charity. Yeah, yeah. People, you, the, the higher up the income scale you go, the less of a proportion of your income you give to, to charity. Yeah. And the charities you do give to when you get to people richer, very often completely worthless ones like the opera or something. Like, I'm not against <laughs> opera, but that's, that's yeah, not yeah. a charity. Like, I don't think of that. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't count. <laughs> like, yeah. Not, not, I've got anything, I'm not an opera fan, but I've got nothing against it. But, that, but yeah, yeah, that's not like a non some, some of my best friends uh, are opera. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, I was hanging out with La Traviata only yesterday. <laughs> exactly. Adam um, Butterfly was my best friend. Yeah. So, I am, uh, and we've talked before on the show, how I am a Brit in America on a visa that can be removed at any occasion. So I have no knowledge or understanding of drugs. <laughs> if you're not deported by the end of this interview, I will regard myself a failure. 
it never even occurred to me this is going to be the episode where we have to decide how real we're getting of our experiences. <laughs> but that's what this is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, I've spoken to people that are in passing and, you know, heard testimonies of people who've done drugs. <laughs> I'm also deportable here, so we'll be, we'll be careful. What, what made you go, what made you start on this? Should we mention the name of this book? Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Guys, this is, we, so, we so rarely do like the sort of in-depth talk with someone who's written a book. Is that, there's certain formalities to the whole. Yeah. <laughs> At some point you have to let the listeners in on what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, we're just having a gossip with our friend <laughs> Johan. Exactly. Johan has written a book called Chasing the Scream, uh, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Um, which is all about how the drugs war is effectively uh, not just a sham, but counterproductive in the extreme. And how did you start? How did you start on that? Well, it was about a bit more than four years ago now, I think. And um, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was too little to understand why then. But as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family. And slightly uh, arrogantly, more than slightly arrogantly, about four years ago, when I realized we were coming up to this is now 100 years since drugs were first banned in the US and Britain. And it was then imposed on the rest of the world. When I realized we were coming up to the centenary, I thought, I'll write a book about this. I thought, oh, this will be a piece of piss. You know, I know loads about this subject. And as I sat down to write, I kind of suddenly realized there were loads of unbelievable, like, all the most basic questions about this subject were things I didn't know the answer to, right? Like, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why do we carry on when it seems to be such a fuck up? Um, what are the actual alternatives practically? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And I suddenly realised, I don't know the answers to any of these things. And obviously read loads, but I kind of, I felt like too often, it's always answered like we're at a philosophy seminar and it's really abstract. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go and sit with loads of people whose lives have been changed one way or another by the war on drugs, by the alternatives, and by addiction. So I ended up going on this journey. I didn't realise at the start how long it like, ended up being three, mile, th- three years and 30,000 miles and going to a lot of different countries. But I really just wanted to sit with people whose lives have been changed one way or another. So from I know, a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel to um, a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see what happens <laughs> to, to the only country that's ever decriminalised all drugs. And I think the main thing I realised is almost everything we think we know about this subject is wrong. Yeah. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The drug war is certainly not what we've been told. The alternatives to the drug war aren't what we've been told. So it's a kind of exciting time when you realise, oh, like, so much of what we believe is not right. Well, it feels like, at least partly, it's people imposing false morality on, or imposing their morality on a group of people. But then also, you describe quite early in the book, you talk about how uh, people who were rich and white and friends with the powers that be were just treated like oh they've got a little problem and in the meantime certain people were then horribly persecuted this is the thing that's really weird to me what we tend to imagine is relevant to the subject of your podcast that what we tend to imagine is drugs were banned because some scientists looked into it or someone rational looked into it and sat down and figured out all oh, right well these things we should ban and these things we won't and this will produce the overall best result what's amazing to go back and look over the the research i opened the book with the story the book is all kind of the stories of people whose lives have been changed one way or another and i opened the story with the story of how billy holiday was stalked and killed by the man who launched the war on drugs which seems like a a weird place to to yeah. begin and who was it who you in that story who was the 
the white woman who was then let off at the same time. At the same time, so the guy who runs the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, yeah. a guy called Harry Anslinger, probably the most influential person who no one's ever heard of, he takes over the Department of Alcohol Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. And to keep his department going, he basically invents the modern war on drugs. At the same time, he finds out that two very famous American women are drug addicts. One of them is Judy Garland, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, which puts The Wizard of Oz in a slightly different perspective. And the other is Billie Holiday, the great right. jazz singer. Um, Judy Garland, he reassures the studio she's going to be fine, and he advises her to take slightly longer vacations. <coughs> with uh, Billie Holiday, he does something quite different. So basically, um, I open with this moment when the, Billie Holiday stands on stage in Midtown Manhattan and she sings the song Strange Fruit, the um, you know, famous anti-lynching song, amazing anti-lynching song. She... Um, she was actually standing in a hotel where she wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door. She had to go through the service elevator because she was African-American. And that night, she gets a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from Harry Anslinger that basically says, stop singing this song. And it seems like a really weird place to begin the story because you think, well, what's that got to do with drugs? Right? Yeah. What's that got to do with the war on drugs? What's fascinating, when drugs were banned... No one sat down and did any rational scientific analysis of what harmed people. In fact, the people who tried to do that were silenced, and I can tell you about that in a minute if you want. What happened is there was a massive panic around race. Obviously, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, African-Americans were denied basic forms of equality. The few advances they had were kind of rolled back. And... Um, a lot of African-Americans were pissed off, quite rightly. In fact, I would imagine all of them were pissed off. And some of them, actually a surprisingly small number, would, would rebel. And there became this very widespread belief among white Americans that African-Americans were rebelling, not because they were being treated like shit, but because they were using cocaine and going crazy. There was also a belief that... <laughs> so basically, was the, if you look at the, the actual the Senate debates or the formal official statements by American government officials, uh, one of them, uh, I won't say the word the cocaine n-word sure is hard to kill there's this the new york times reports official stories the the blacks as they would put it the negroes in in the south are using cocaine and attacking white people this was the official reason in lots of parts of the united states why law enforcement increased their um the caliber of guns they carried because they believed that negroes the phrase they used i'm putting that in inverted commas were uh using cocaine and attacking white people and all the debate is nothing about and like you needed a higher caliber because they couldn't be felled by normal guns because the they're in this coke frenzy because they literally were like hulks they were like the incredible yeah. hulk and now in the interest because we are a science podcast you're here to say that that is untrue <laughs> wow this has been carefully studied and the, but what's it was fascinating about this the so this is the, dominates the debate. Actually, one guy uh, writes to Harry Anslinger um, when he's launching this crusade, a scientist called uh, Dr. Ball, his name was, writes to him and says, well, you know, Mr. Anslinger, you, you may be right, you may be wrong, but I kind of think we should have some scientific studies about this. And Anslinger writes back to him and says, the time for temporizing is over. <laughs> he also has an amazing quote where another person challenged him about the science and Harry Anslinger said, this is exact words, I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. <laughs> and to me, that's like the perfect um, uh, motto for the whole war on drugs. And what's incredible is when he does this, Billie Holiday, um, incredibly bravely, says, in effect, fuck you, I'm an American citizen, I'll sing my song. And she commits to carry on singing this song. And that's when he resolves to absolutely destroy her. He sends an African-American officer to go and stalk her. Hated employing African-Americans, but he figured out you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday. So he sends this agent, Jimmy Fletcher, to stalk Billie Holiday to monitor everything she does. Billie Holiday was so amazing that this guy fell in love with her. 
And his whole life, he felt ashamed of what he did. He busts her. She's put on trial. Uh, and it was a base. And it was a very dubious bust as well. Like they found, they found stuff in her. her tra- that was a later bust. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There was the initial bust. Was was uh, she was genuinely using heroin? We should understand that she was using it. I mean, she was raped as a child and then turned into a child prostitute. She was trying to deal with the pain and grief she was feeling. When she was put on trial, she said. Um, it was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that's how it fucking felt. <laughs> and uh, she's put in prison. She goes to prison for two years. But the worst bit is what happens next. She gets out of prison, and you, you needed a license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. And Anseling and make sure she didn't get it, so she's uh, she she couldn't perform in almost any anywhere where alcohol was served, which is most places, obviously. Um, and you know, one of her friends, Yolanda Bavan, said to me what's the cruelest thing you can do to a person It's to take away the thing they love, right? This is what we do to addicts all over the United States. We give them criminal records. We make it almost impossible for them to get jobs again. Um, She relapses into addiction. And then when she collapses and she's taken to hospital in New York, um, she says to one of her friends, she's convinced the narcotics agent's going to come for her. She says to one of her friends, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them. They arrested her. She was diagnosed with liver cancer. Anseling's men arrest her on her deathbed. I interviewed the last surviving guy to, to have actually been in that room. They handcuffed her to, to her deathbed. They took away her record player, her flowers, her candies. They didn't let her friends in to see her. Oh I mean, it was this, uh, And she, she goes into heroin withdrawal, which is not that dangerous. Normally, it's like a bad flu, but obviously, if you've got liver cancer, it can be very dangerous. And one of her friends manages to insist that she's given methadone, and she starts to recover... And then Anslinger's men cut off the methadone and she dies a few days later. Um, But to me, the amazing thing about that, there's so many things about that that tell us about so much about what the war on drugs has been about from the start. Race, you know, African-Americans make up the overwhelming majority of people who go to prison for drug-related offences, even though they're no more likely to commit them than anyone else. What we do to addicts, we make addicts much worse by the war on drugs. But to me, the really inspiring thing about it was, you know, Whatever they did to Billie Holiday, she never stopped singing that song. She would go to like the deep south. She would sing Strange Fruit. So to think about how addicts can be heroes. But also as bad as that mistreatment is, at least like there aren't any more drugs. So that... Yeah, she had to suffer miserably, but it solved the like it solved it. So there's going to be some casualties. So yeah, yeah, there's the always collateral damage. Right, right, right. Um, but that... What, the, uh, what you just described with uh, with Anslinger sending away the scientist, that still happens. Like, like just a few years ago in Britain, David Nutt, uh, Professor Nutt, um, who was what well, you'll know better than I. He was the, he was he the was chief the, scientific advisor on drugs in Britain, and he was commissioned to make a report. And then oh, it was even worse than that. It wasn't a report. So he was basically so the government, the British government, has this uh, board of scientists that advise them on drug policy. And David Nutt was the chair of that, right? right. Very distinguished scientist at UCH. I know him a bit. Um, and um, basically, he uh, he gave a speech, a public speech, in which I, I might be getting some of the details. Of this. I'm pretty sure I'm getting the details of this right. Um, Someone, uh, someone in the audience asked him about, the rel- about ecstasy and the dangers of ecstasy. And he just said, well, look, a certain number, of, I think it's about five people a year die using ecstasy in Britain. Um, and he said, uh, vastly more people die doing horse riding, for example. Right. And he said, I guess if, you know, if horse riding was a drug called equesty, it would make more sense <laughs> to ban that, right? And anyway, he said this. No one disputes that that's true, right? Literally yes. no one can dispute that. Ecstasy is dramatically less dangerous than Wh- horse which riding. Which sort of hammers home kind of... Well, the, if drugs are put in a context, 
there are lots of things that uh, the government ministers and people who make laws do that are calculated risks against a certain amount of... In- it's a risk-to-enjoyment ratio that you're calculating. Skiing being another very common one. Every, like, yeah. whenever, I've got, whenever I've been in a ski resort, there's always someone going around on crutches. Yeah. And every season, there's a couple of... There's one or two deaths per large resort right. just from skiing. And we still ski because it's a very enjoyable pursuit and you're taking a certain risk. Skydiving has a much higher risk, but also apparently I've never been, but apparently is much more exhilarating and we're fine with that. Drugs carry a certain level of possibility of something going wrong against a reward of enjoyment. <laughs> it's worse than that because the criminalisation actually makes them much more dangerous and I can talk about that. But but just to finish thinking about David Nutt because I think it's yeah. really important. Um, uh, so basically David made these statements. Everyone agrees this is true. No one disputes it. There's a big tabloid row a few weeks later. Professor and- Nutt says you should do ecstasy rather than ride a horse. Exactly. <laughs> or he and, says outlaw horse riding. Right? And, yeah. in his bo- and he was then fired by the British government, for dismissed from his job uh, for, for making a factual statement. And in his book... He gives a transcript of what the government minister who fired him, Jackie Smith, said. And uh, he gives the exact words in the book, but they're saying like this. Jackie Smith, you can't say uh, horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy. David, why? Jackie Smith, because horse riding is legal and ecstasy is illegal. <laughs> Jack- uh, David, why is horse riding legal and ecstasy illegal? Jackie Smith, because horse riding is less dangerous than ecstasy. It's just this very, it's a perfect <laughs> illustration of the Amazing. circular logic of the drug war, which runs all, the, and you see this as an absolute pattern all the way through. There's been a huge distortion of the science through the fund, through NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. I can talk mm-hmm. about that if you like. Um, but there's an absolute, every step, an absolute denial of scientific evidence. To me, the most shocking one, and the one that most blew my mind, is how we have been systematically misinformed about what causes addiction. Um, to a degree that really amazed me. If you had asked me four years ago what causes, say, heroin addiction, mm-hmm. I would have looked at you like you were a bit stupid and I would have said, well... Well, heroin. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The clue's in the title, right? <laughs> and we, we've got this story in our heads that we've been told for 100 years since Anslinger that we take for granted. We think that if the next 20 people to walk past this room all used heroin together for 20 days, by day 21 they'd all be heroin addicts because there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to physically need. They'd start to desperately crave it and they'd have this desperate urge for heroin. By then, that's what I believe. That's what I thought I had seen in people I love. Yeah. The first thing that alerted me to the fact that they they're saying it can't be right about that story is when I went and interviewed uh, a doctor called Gabor Martin, an amazing doctor called Gabor Martin in Canada. He explained to me, if, if, if anyone listening to this podcast in uh, almost anywhere in Europe or in Canada... Uh, while they're listening to the podcast gets hit by a truck let's hope this doesn't happen and they break their hip they'll be taken to hospital and they'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine for the pain right diamorphine is heroin it's just the medical name for heroin it's much better heroin than you'd ever buy from a dealer <laughs> because it's medically pure whereas what you buy from a dealer on the streets of Beverly Hills is going to be or it wouldn't be on the streets we'd phone him uh, would be I'm, I'm told uh, would be would be you know massively contaminated actually a small amount of it is actually even heroin. at the Four Seasons even at the okay, seasons. Okay. Um, that's a good point. Um, when, when, I, when I learned that, right, uh, and what's interesting is if what we think about addiction is right, what should happen to those people in hospital? They're exposed to all the same I- chemical hooks as any other addict. Some of them should become addicts. A significant number of them should become addicts. This has been studied very carefully. There's lots of academic studies of this. It doesn't happen, right? It's extremely rare that someone becomes addicted in a medical setting. I mean, what about? I thought I'd heard that after wars, though, that people come back as. Ah, addicts. well, I get to that. This okay, is really sorry, okay. important. This is really significant. I, I thought, by the way, just backtracking for a second, I thought 
you get given morphine in a in normally in a hospital and then diamorphine which is hero which is obviously related but then diamorphine which is heroin gets tends to get given in palliative care rather than you're given extremely powerful opiates and it varies from place yeah. to place so a lot of places give diamorphine obviously there would be a very powerful opiates but even still well. like even straight yeah. morphine i've been given i've been given morphine after a what? really yeah when i had um i had my wisdom teeth out but i had it like under like the nerve was wrapped around so i had to have it under general oh, anesthetic okay. and when i woke up the first thing i had was like i woke up on morphine felt very nice it's good, and it's then, good. well i was i was kind of too out of it in general to but yeah. you know i had it for a day and then then get sent home with codeine which is also an opiate mm. and um, then you descended into the horrific state that we see today yeah the, <laughs> that's why we're gonna have to pause <laughs> this to podcast for a second then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, so when i when i found out that like you have people in medical settings taking enormous and, pa- and powerful amounts of opiates exposed to all the same chemical hooks and they don't become addicted uh, to, uh, the speech of the war thing in a minute because there's a really good example about that um, I just didn't get it. I just thought this is really weird. I don't understand. And I only really began to understand it when I went and interviewed this guy called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who did this really important experiment that's opened up this different field of understanding addiction. And uh, Professor Alexander explained to me one of the play. Oh, hang on, should we pause this for a second? Sure, sure. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Here at your door and say, that's the, like water. That's the four seasons, man. <laughs> that's weird. Someone just, I'm fine for that, but someone, someone just appears. They Wait, literally, is it partly drank? Already? Oh my god. She just handed us an opened <laughs> bottle of water. Do you think they tried to kill me? I check it. I don't know. It could that's, be a. Have you offended the Russians? <laughs> that's really peculiar. Let's not drink it. Uh, anyway, that's, that? they just appear at your door and say, would you like chocolate? Would you like... It's really weird. Uh, I've never understood, like, turn-down service is the funniest idea yeah. of fancy <laughs> you know, You know how <laughs> businessmen are notoriously unable to right. fold over a duvet. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. Uh, so, basically, um, uh, Bruce Alexander um, explained to me that... Um, this story about addiction that we've got comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century that are really kind of easy experiments to do. Your listeners can do them at home if they're mm. feeling a bit sadistic. You get, you get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat almost always prefers the drugged water and almost always kills itself. So there you go, right? Do you remember the famous advert, the Partnership for Drug-Free America advert in the 80s that showed this experiment? It showed like a rat in a cage and it's drinking it goes something like, this will happen to you. Yeah. 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 It's like, this is, where the, uh, this is where our story about addiction comes from. Um, and it makes perfect sense, right? It fits with what we think. In the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. He looked at these experiments. said, hang on a minute. We're putting these rats in an empty cage. They've got nothing to do except use these drugs. What if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? Mm-hmm. Anything a rat can want in life, it's got. It's got loads of friends, it can have loads of sex, it's got loads of cheese, loads of coloured balls, loads of tunnels. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. Um, and they, of course, try both because they don't know what's in them. In Rat Park, it turns out, this is the fascinating thing, they just don't like the drug water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you compare that to almost 100% over, uh, compulsive use and overdose when they're isolated to almost none, when, to none, in fact, in Rat Park. And this relates to what you were saying about wars. At the same time, there was actually a human experiment going on, uh, very similar. It's called the Vietnam War. 
20% of American troops in Vietnam were using shitloads of heroin. And if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when they come home. And there was a very good study of this by the Archives of General Psychiatry that, that followed uh, uh, some of these, these heroin addicts home. And what it found was 95% of them just stopped, right? They didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into severe withdrawal. They just stopped. Now, what Professor Alexander talks about, and this has then been built on by lots of other um, scientists who've looked at it, and, and particularly social scientists, is we've been thinking about addiction in the wrong way. Addiction is not primarily caused by chemical hooks. It's not a moral failing. It's not a disease. Mm-hmm. It's largely an adaptation to your, human, to your environment. Human beings, like rats, need, have an innate need to connect and bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're isolated or traumatized like Billie Holiday was or just beaten down by life, you will bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of relief. That might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be uh, heroin. But you'll bond and connect with something. Actually, the rise of all... And David Nutt's been really interesting on this, actually. The rise of the understanding of behavioural addictions is really significant, like gambling. Because go to any meeting of Gamblers Anonymous here in LA, and you'll see those guys are just as addicted as any smack addict you'll ever meet. But no one thinks you inject a roulette wheel or snort a pack of cards. We've tried. (laughs) Andy's doing it right now. (laughs) So we built this whole trillion-dollar war on the idea that we need to physically prevent these substances getting through. Now, set aside the fact that we can't even keep them out of prisons, right? So it's not working. But um, which is actually based on this this completely incorrect theory about what causes and drives addiction. Well, um, in Portugal, when... And again, I know you've sort of covered that. But like Portugal was Portugal was the first place to just completely decriminalize drugs, right, and treat it as a medical issue. And but they still that's still not addressing the original cause of the addiction, right? But that is at least removing the source of the war on drugs and the problems of that. So why I, I went there, spent some time there, and got to know all the people who changed the policy, the main people who led the change of policy. It was, it was really interesting. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of incredible. And every year they tried the American way more, they arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, we can't, we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? And they decided to do something really radical, something no one had done since Anslinger, before Anslinger. They just said, should we get some scientists to look at the evidence? Yeah. <laughs> so they set up this Cause, panel. Cause this is the thing that's maddening. <laughs> and again, again like, from a science point of view, the number of people, and this happened consistently with people like David Nutt, who would, like, don't, uh, don't pretend that you're being scientific. Like, they, they employed a scientist and then didn't like what he said, so they got rid of him. Just, like, I wouldn't, I'd almost respect them if they just admitted that they're like, no, we, we, ha- we have a moral objection to drugs, and even if, the, even if the science strongly suggests that this is not the best way to prevent deaths and improve the population, that we can never condone drugs because they are always bad, I'm morally opposed to them, and therefore I'm ignoring the scientific evidence of making this law. I'd go, like, you're a monster and you're an idiot, but at least you have... You're a monster idiot with integrity. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Whereas they sort of pretend, they consistently pretend that the 
evidence fits what they're doing and what they what they're suggesting. So what happened when the Portuguese scientists got involved? Well, so they basically it was led by this. They had set up a panel. It was. Um, doctors i think it was a couple of judges and a social scientist and they basically said go away and look at all the evidence and tell us what to do so they went away and found out all this stuff about rat park it was led by this amazing man called dr Juan gulao who i got to know and they came back and said oh the crucial thing was all the main political parties in portugal agreed in advance that they do whatever the panel recommended so it just wow. took it out of politics right how did they get that going that's it's, amazing yeah well that, has that ever happened in any other branch of politics with we'll defer to an expert like no one ever wants to like, step back and actually- there was actually I, I i can't go into too much detail about this guy was asked not to to write about it. i didn't use it in the book but a strikingly large number of the people involved uh, senior political figures in portugal ha- happened by good chance for drug policy to have close relatives who were addicts oh, okay i can't say much more than that but the um which gave them a strong motivation to try to actually solve this problem. And the, the, the panel came back and they, they said, decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to meth, everything. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on arresting drug users, punishing drug addicts, all of that, and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment here in the US. Mm-hmm. So they do a little bit of uh, psychological support and things like that. That does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was a massive program of job creation for addicts. So say you used to be a mechanic. They'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. They set up a huge program of microloans for addicts to set up small businesses they ran themselves. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning and was connected to the wider society. The message to every addict was, we love you, we value you, we want you as part of the society. You shouldn't be ashamed, you shouldn't be shamed you know we want you back and i went and met loads of the people who'd you know been in these programs and you know it's now been in fact in a couple of months it's 15 years since this experiment began and the results are now in injecting drug use is down by 50 percent in portugal overdose deaths are massively down hiv transmission among addicts is massively down um street crime is significantly down these things have not happened in spain next door where they didn't do the decriminalization um which gives us a good kind of comparison point i went and interviewed one of the ways you know it's done so worked so well is i went and interviewed this guy called juan figuera who led the opposition to the decriminalization in portugal at the time mm-hmm. he's the top drug cop he was the top drug cop at the time and he said you know uh, what a lot of people would say when they hear about this which is surely if you decriminalize all drugs you'll have a massive increase in drug use you'll have all sorts of disasters and he said to me exact words are in the book he said everything i said would happen didn't happen and everything the other side said would happen did and he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent 20 years before the decriminalization arresting drug addicts and making them worse and he hoped the whole world followed portugal's example That's i think he, i think he thought i was a bit of a freak because <laughs> having been to all these places where like you know, I'd been to Ciudad Juarez, I'd been to a prison in Arizona where they make women go out on chain gangs wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and make them dig graves while members of the public jeer at them. Or to be to, like, the worst parts of the war on drugs, to be, go to this place and be told, like, oh, there's a solution, it works really well, things get better. <laughs> I just, I think I cried in that interview and he looked, he looked he's this quite conservative police officer, he looked a bit puzzled, but, <laughs> you know, it was just very... Yeah. I mean, but what hope do we have to actually, I feel like there's so much... Maybe maybe because it's a smaller country, it seems more feasible there. But like with our country being, with it, with this, there's a couple of things going on where there's no politicians rarely lose by promise by promising to be tougher on drugs, like or, or tougher on crime in general. 
Like, and it's it's very easy to manipulate and to to sell this solution as this person wants to put a drug addict in your in your kindergarten. Yeah, and like it, um, I think it requires the government to be better than the worst of its constituents in yeah. a way and say, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and do something Stephen counterintuitive Harper, to you as the public, but you have to trust yeah. that we are actually acting it, in everyone's best interest. As the, the are they called like wedge issues? Like I was reading recently about how Stephen Harper basically keeps winning elections in Canada, despite Th- being... Things like abortion that are like not important awful. compared to the economy yeah. or yeah. the country actually but, running well. well. Actually, Harper was okay on abortion because I think he, re- he worked out that his hardcore conservative base would stay with him and he needed to win some from the middle. So he, he went liberal on i think abortion and gay rights but he there's certain things that he's done uh like he closed down needle exchange programs and injection rooms and that kind of, uh, he tried he got stopped by the supreme okay. court okay he tried yeah uh and but just uh just so he could basically say i'm tough on i'm tough on this oh, and, the op- even... and the opposition wants to put heroin addicts in your wants yeah. to wants more heroin addicts and you go you fuck it, you are ruining lives to gain more power, you yeah. monstrous. Yeah, I, but it's interesting if you think about how to shift the debate. So I went to lots of places that ad- adopted different policies, and to me, one of the interesting ones is Switzerland. Right, Switzerland is a really conservative country. I'm a Swiss citizen because of my dad, as well as obviously British. My grandmother didn't get the vote until 1976. Right, this is not San Francisco. And that is that all women or specifically her? <laughs> <It's different. laughs> she specifically knows, her. She knows what she did. She knows what she did. Yeah. Exactly. My poor grandmother. The, um, the, uh, Until you behave. <laughs> Relent. The, uh, I'm trying to remember the joke. Ger- oh. What? Oh, the clipping? Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the German word for relent, but the uh, it sounds sinister, whatever one? it is. Yeah, a, I can't imagine the concept of relenting has existed in German culture. Um, no, the, you the, have no word for relent. <laughs> like the opposite of Eskimos and Snow. It's like, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely not true. But, the, but it's a very interesting. So Switzerland has legalized heroin for addicts, right? Which seems really incongruous with the fact that it's a really conservative country. And the way they did it is fascinating. It was partly led by the, the, the first female president, first Jewish president, which is significant in a very anti-Semitic country, Ruth Dreyfus, who I got to know, who's just the most kick-ass, amazing person ever. And um, the way she did it was actually by using a very conservative argument. It's about saying to people, you think um, legalization means, um, you know, chaos and anarchy. What we have now is chaos and anarchy and a Mm free-for-all. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users all in the dark, in an environment killed with, filled with violence, disease, and, and chaos, right? Legalization is a way of restoring order to that anarchy. It's a way of taking the drugs back from armed criminal gangs. It's a way of taking the addicts off the streets into nice, clean clinics where we help them and turn their lives around. It's a way of getting all the disease out of it. It's very interesting. So it was extremely controversial when she did it, and right? It's, and it's very... Like, you can, you can create a very convincing conservative economic argument for it as well. I say fortune in law enforcement. If you look at the figures I give them in the book, I don't remember off the top of my head. The, the amount of money it saved in Switzerland. Because if you stop people, I mean, the figures for law enforcement, healthcare. Yeah, I think the, I think the figure was something like an eighty percent fall in street crime and burglary. I mean, we're talking like an extraordinary falling in street crime. Uh, street prostitution just ended. It turns out men, women don't want to be randomly fucked by men if they're not desperate for drugs. Um, so it was re- the results were really striking. It was extremely controversial at the time, and because they have this system of direct democracy, there was a referendum ballot to over- repeal it, and 70% of Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal. 
um, once they'd seen the results. It was a really striking... And it's very interesting if you think about the US debate. I think that's a really crucial argument for the US debate. Yeah. It's not... I'm all in favour of compassion for, for addicts and liberty for users. Those are not actually the most resonant... Uh, the, the issues that get the most traction. I mean, compassion for addicts gets some. Liberty, Libertarian-based arguments for ending the war on drugs, which I'm also sympathetic to, are politically toxic. They yeah. don't work anywhere and that people hate them. It's not quite clear why, and it's interesting to talk about that. But it's very interesting. If you look at Colorado and Washington... You know, and now Oregon. Actually, last week Oregon legalized marijuana. There was virtually no news reports about it. They, the legal sale went. You know, well, Oregon. The vote had happened Oregon. earlier. Oregon, just already, into yeah, effect, Oregon already had medicinal marijuana, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. That's what I mean. We're in California right now. That's what California has, and it's it's close it, enough. It's so effectively. Yeah. Again, I, I'm uh, like I don't know anyone who has failed to get who has attempted to get a yeah. weed card a medicinal marijuana card who has failed like That's there a good are point yeah I'm no- <laughs> there are you it's it's basically it's such a formality you just it, can you imagine if you were the one person right, right. You, got turned down. you go like i'm fatigued well you seem pretty sprightly to me <laughs> yeah. no, but i also have anxiety well you walked in here with the confidence right. of a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, My back hurts. He drops a pen. You pick it up. See, your back's fine. Oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Uh. yeah, it's it's almost like it's almost impossible to fail to get a marijuana cut. So it's it's all but legal here. And I think that was the case in Oregon until it got. I think so. Yeah. So now Washington, Colorado, Oregon are all like totally legal. No yes. pretense Full of legal sales. Over twenty-one year olds, you can only buy a certain amount per day. Um, and there's still that weirdness of it being illegal of, at a federal level, which yeah, yeah. And there's no, there are no still, places you can go and smoke it in a, a you bar can't smoke setting. It in a public place. No, they yeah, don't have yeah, the equivalent yeah. of coffee shops, the yeah. Dutch coffee shops. But you know, if you look at that, if we had said 15 years ago that you would have legalization of marijuana at the heart of the United States, the country that has imposed this war on the entire world, mostly through force and intimidation, you know, you would have thought we were were crazy. And that didn't happen because of politicians at the top. If you look at Colorado. In Washington, they were citizens' initiatives. They were ballot initiatives. You know, they were v- virtually no prominent politicians. Weirdly, actually, one of the only ones was Tom Tancredo. You know, the monstrous right-wing Republican. I interviewed him. I do. He's kind of yeah. He's a kind of he's the one who li- I think he said that the United States should nuke Mecca if there was another terrorist attack <laughs> on. Like he's he's not my normal political ally, and yet he's great on this issue. And it's interesting. This isn't a traditional left-right. You know, Rand Paul has been really nice about my book. He is not. You know, if Rand I was an American Paul, citizen, I would not be uh, Rampal. Const- yeah. Traditional. Yeah. Well, that, the whole thing about libertarianism, like the American Libertarian Party, is there are on certain social issues. I find myself very much agreeing with them, and then you get onto anything economic, and then you're like, ah, fuck you. Yeah, you yeah. do that's not you just like you, a ten year old idea of how the world could work, and no concept of society it's, it's like or, what, way- or what you gain from it. Like you're like, oh, you did it all by yourself, and everything will happen, and charity will pick up all of the slack where. Yeah. Which we just talked about at the very beginning of this show, mm-hmm. where it turns out people, the people who are most able to pay or most required to pay taxes, turn out to be the least charitable. Yeah. So it actually ends up being far more. It'll end up being far more aggressive support yeah. system. Libertarianism just seems like Republicanism with this veneer of like I still want to be an outsider somehow. I still want to be cool weird, or something. Like, I think you're right. I think the weird thing is that actually they abuse the concept of liberty because they have this concept of they think the only possible threat to liberty is the state. 
and they have a purely negative conception of liberty, which is you should be protected from the state. Now, if there were no other threat to liberty, that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to say. But of course, there are loads of threats to your liberty. You can be threatened by non-state actors, obviously, like we have to be kept safe from, you know, even hardcore libertarians would agree, you know, you have to stop people being attacked by in the street or whatever. But more than that, positive liberty, if you think about, I was looking at Paul Ryan's tax plan, you know, which he would describe as libertarian, which is to basically dismantle food stamps, Pell Grants, all of those things. Well, Fire departments, uh, public schools. <laughs> exactly. Is a person in Compton going to be more free when they don't have food stamps? They don't have any chance to go to be properly educated. They, Of course not. They're going to be significantly less free. Yeah, I, Positive liberty is the only kind of liberty that makes any sense. But there was just, as you were saying that, Matt, I was just thinking the thing I meant to say when you... Um, talk about David Nutt, which is, a, I think, the, one of the biggest issues concerning science in this whole field, which is in 1970, when Nixon is uh, first uses the phrase war on drugs and is really ramping up, Anslinger had actually used that phrase many years before, but he, Nixon popularizes it. He does something quite striking. He basically creates something called NIDA, the National Institute for Drug Abuse, which he gives the specific remit as basically go and find evidence that drugs are harmful, Right. And NIDA has grown into this kind of monster that now funds 90% of all research into currently legal drug use in the world, right? So basically, if you're funding 90%, almost everyone is taking money from you. And it's led to this really disturbing distortion of the science. I interviewed lots of scientists about this, some of whom were brave enough to, to talk about it on the record. Carl Hart, Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University is one of the really interesting ones. Basically, what happens is it's not they're not charlatans they're not frauds obviously there are harms associated with drug use right so they find that evidence very well but the overall picture is hugely distorted people who find positive uses of drugs just they would never commission studies to look for positive uses but if they stumble across them often the scientists don't publish they don't um they won't use those studies um because they know they won't get money from NIDA if they carry on doing that i interviewed a guy called Eric Sterling, who wrote the drug laws for the United States from 1979 to 1989. He was the lawyer on the Senate subcommittee. And he talked about how they, they literally science was never a factor in any of the decisions right. the senators made, congressmen made, ever. But what's interesting is he said, I said to him, what would happen if like NIDA did publish a study talking about the positive effects of some drug or even that it wasn't harmful? And he said, well, that would never happen because the head of NIDA would know not to do that. In the extremely unlikely event that the head of NIDA lost her mind and did that, she would be called before a Senate committee and we would we'd make sure she was fired. So there's this political pressure right. that has completely distorted science across the world. I was fascinated. I went to interview the Robert Dupont, who uh, set up NIDA, right, who is, uh, was a scientist in this field. And it was so weird. When I talked to him about things like Rat Park and um, all the evidence about addiction that's emerged... He just never heard of it. It was just completely, and all his answers were completely political. I'd say like, well, what do you think about this? And he'd just go, well, that would promote drug use if we used it. That's not an exact quote, but things like that. And I kind of, well, that's not your job. You're not a politician, right? You're meant to be assessing the scientific evidence. It was very striking. And so if you're cherry picking, like across science, there's a problem with cherry picking evidence and cherry picking right. reports and studies. But yeah, that's, <laughs> that would end up with an incredibly negative thing. But then when you talk about how, changing the laws in america unlike in switzerland and unlike in a lot of european countries america has that extra factor where the criminal system and particularly the prison system is so privatized that there are huge financial incentives to massive corporations mm. to keep these things criminalized 
If you want to know the financial forces backing the war on drugs, one of the things to do is to look at who backs the referendum campaigns against legalization. Right. Because then you get a good sense of it. Prison guard unions are massive. I actually think I think about private. Pr- I think private prisons are an atrocity and should be ended immediately. But I actually think the private prisons thing is a bit overrated in terms of the drug war because actually the private prisons are no worse. They're no better, but they're no worse than the atrocities of the general American prison system. Um, I can tell a story about the American prison system in a second that really, of all the things that I did for the book, it was one of the things that most horrified me. But the the. Um, but yeah, the alcohol industry is a huge backer of it because they know this is one of the things that happened here in California when you had the de facto legalization that you're describing. There's actually been a fall in alcohol sales and a fall in DUIs. And it looks like what's happened is there's been some transfer from alcohol to marijuana, um, which I think is probably on balance a positive thing. It's certainly not a bad thing. Um, and the alcohol industry seem to have figured that out as well, which is why they're really against legalization. And also, ironic, them posing as like, we're against drug dealers. It's yeah. like, you know, the absurdity of that. But- so like, well, they've had, a, <clears throat> they've had a clear hundred year run as a monopoly <laughs> yeah, on exactly. intoxication. And it's like, well, that's kind of, you've had a good run of it. So like, yeah, it's quite yeah. rare to kind of go, how did you... Ma- so you managed to make all of your competitors illegal. <laughs> like, not just, the only not way just to close. alter the way you feel, the way you experience the world is through this one chemical. It's just yeah, yeah. everything else you go Legally, to prison. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just as you were saying that about prisons, it made me think about one of the most terrible, you know, I went to some really awful places as well as some really inspiring places. And um, when I went to Arizona... There's this guy who's a disciple, a personal disciple of Harry Anslinger, called Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe. Right, a lot of your listeners will know. Who he's he a he's a monstrous human being in many different aspects. He's he keeps a picture of Harry Anslinger on his wall, and he knew Anslinger. He was brought up by Anslinger, but brought up in the through the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, but not not he raised star- as a child. He styled himself as America's hardest sheriff. Or- yeah, yeah. I went to his prison. That's the prison where they make women go out on chain gangs. Right. These broken addicted women and anyway before i went uh before i i i did i was talking around to experts and things and i spoke to this woman called donna leone ham who runs an amazing charity called middle ground prison reform who basically one of the only groups working on prisoners rights in that that area and i said to her this question i always ask loads of people which is tell me about something that shocked you in the time you've been working on this and she kind of went through this big long list and somewhere down the list quite a long way down she said there was the time they put that woman in a cage and cooked her. That was quite bad. And then she just carried on. And I said, sorry, Donna, could we go back a second? There was a woman called Marsha Powell, about whom virtually nothing was known when I started doing the research, who kept being arrested either for uh, having crack or meth or prostituting herself to get crack or meth. If you read the police transcripts with her, she was clearly profoundly mentally ill. Uh, in fact, the court found that she was profoundly mentally ill. Uh, and appointed a guardian. She woke up in Perryville Prison one day, 2009, and she was completely suicidal. And to shut her up, the guards took her and they put her in what, what's called a holding cage, where by law you're not allowed to put someone for more than 45 minutes. It's literally an exposed cage in the desert. And they left her there, and what happened next is disputed. The guards say they forgot about her, the other prisoners say she screamed for help, begged for help, shat herself, and the guards mocked her. Either way, what happened next is not disputed. She eventually collapsed. They eventually called an ambulance. By the time the ambulance arrived, she had been cooked. The most shocking bit is what happened next, which is that nobody was ever criminally punished for what happened to Marsha Powell. 
no one gave a shit because she was an addict and addicts' lives don't matter. I then went and found out who she was. I told the story in the book about who she was. I tracked down her family. It's actually very like Billie Holiday's family. She was had a horrific childhood. Uh, she was clearly trying to deal with like the tr- her trauma. No one ever tried to help her. That If you think about the amount of money we spend imprisoning people, breaking them, it's not just that that doesn't, sometimes you get people saying, oh, it doesn't work. It's much worse than that. It makes their addictions worse. You know, if pain and isolation are the main drivers of addiction, suddenly you realise... So prison more, isn't the solution to that? Inflicting more... But, you know, in Pentensity, that prison, Joe Arpaio's prison, the women talked about how they were terrified of this place called The Hole, right? And I, on my second day there, I said to the guards, will you take me to... The, people can hear the audio of this on the book's website as well. I said to the guards, will you take me to The Hole? I was sure they'd say no. And they're like, yeah, sure, come along. They took me. Because there's a kind of pantomime of cruelty. They want you to take part in the cruelty. And... Um, so I went to this hole and it's literally, it's a hole where women are put for like a month at a time. A month. Yeah. And I suddenly looked at them and I suddenly thought, fuck, this is the closest you could ever get to a literal human reenactment of the cages that guaranteed addiction in those rat experiments. Yeah. And this is what we're doing to stop them being addicts and we're surprised it doesn't work. We then, when they get out, cut them off even further. They've got criminal records. Those women will never work in the legal economy again. And again, we're, you know, we're surprised it doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I was thinking, the one thing you can, it goes back to what you were saying before, Matt. The one thing you can say about the war on drugs in its defense is we have given it a fair shot, right? A hundred <laughs> years, years, a trillion dollars. God. We have killed hundreds of thousands of people. I just came here from Mexico, a lot of, uh, a lot of reporting in Mexico. What we have done to Mexico is unimaginable. You know, <clears throat> we talk all the time about the war in Syria. Almost as many people have died in the drug war violence in Mexico, which is entirely caused by the system of prohibition. And, you know, Michelle Leonhardt, who was the head of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, until a few weeks ago, she was asked in Senate testimony about the figure they put to her was 60,000 people have died in Mexico. It's far more than that. And she said, these were her exact words, that's a sign of success in the war on drugs. You know, God. that should, if I think about the people I met in Juarez... That's who, cold. You know, that should be a national scandal here. Amer- ordinary Americans are much better than that. Yeah. You know... Um, I mean, I hope we are. I'm, yeah, you definitely are. Most <laughs> Americans do not want to... Well, they also, they also fly over dropping... Oh, fuck, sorry. Uh, dropping pesticides and... Uh, or j- the chemicals that destroy cocaine crops, but also just destroy villages... Yeah, in Colombia, there's this the uh, the aerial fumigation of Colombia, Plan Colombia, is still going on. You know, think about the the madness dropping poisons basically on entire villages because that's where the cocaine is. Also, the absurdity of it, if you think about it, you know, first there's this thing called the balloon effect, right? Where it's true that if if you've got an area where they're growing drugs or smuggling drugs, if you massively massively increase enforcement in that area, you will stop it there. It will go somewhere else. It's called the balloon effect. So if you imagine a balloon half full of air, right. if you push down one place, it just pops up mm-hmm. another, right? So you can shuffle the violence around or the drug growing around, but you never diminish it. But we know you never diminish it because if you restricted supply, the price would go up and that doesn't happen. Interesting. So we know wow. that the... And it's really important to understand why the violence happens. And this is a, something that's widely misunderstood. You hear the phrase drug-related violence, right? You'll hear that on the news a lot. And what people think when they hear that is someone used drugs 
went crazy and killed someone. That does happen. There was a guy called Professor Paul Goldstein at NYU who did a study of this. And he found, I think these were the figures, um, around 4% of what's called drug-related... He did a study of every, everything that was classified as drug-related violence in right. New York City in 1986. And he found, I think it was 3 to 4% were where an addict was committing a property crime to get their fix. It went wrong and someone was hurt. Uh, I think about 9% was where someone used drugs and lost the plot. And all the rest was rival drug dealers killing each other to establish and protect their patch, right? And it's really important to understand that violence we can just end, right? If you want to understand how to end it, ask yourself, in Chicago today, where are the violent alcohol dealers, right? Does the head of Heineken go and shoot the head of Smirnoff in the face? Does the the liquor aisle in Walmart go and blow up the local liquor store? Of course not. That's exactly what happened under alcohol prohibition. There's an amazing graph that Professor Jeffrey Myron at Harvard did of the murder rate in the United States in the 20th century. It's really low. Alcohol is banned and it massively goes up. Alcohol is legalized and it massively plummets. murder rate remains relatively low and then the war on drugs is massively intensified by Nixon and it hugely goes up. Prohibition is not the only factor but it's a really significant one. The Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman crunched the numbers on this. He said there are 10,000 additional murders every year in the United States as a result of the war for drugs that's created by the war on drugs and that violence just ends with... Yeah. There are no violent heroin dealers in Switzerland now. By the way, since they legalised heroin in Switzerland, do you know how many people have died of heroin overdoses? Uh, millions, I'm going to guess. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> Literally none. Not zero percent, rounding down to zero. Nobody. You know, the, the, it's, it was very striking to me. Everywhere I went that's gone beyond the war on drugs, right? It's really controversial at first. It's hugely charged debate. And then they do it and everyone's like, oh. So everyone just sees the results? Because that's what I was going to ask you. I know you have to go soon. But Actually, like, I've got, he just texted me saying he's going to be at 640, so we've got Oh, great, time. okay. Because uh, I wonder what would have to... Like, if, if the government said, listen, we're not, we're, we don't care that this is so counter to what the American thinking about this is, we're just going to put this in place, is that all it would take? And then Americans, as a country, would see the results and then come around, you well, think? Or, it takes, be- I feel like there's so much built into our system of, of thought about like these people being lesser because they've succumbed to this. Like, people want to feel... Like, this is a group that they can consider others, you know, and, and do you know what I mean? Like, I think the, to change your thought about that as, a, as an individual in the country would take a, a long time, I would think. I think that's a really important question. The, the end of alcohol prohibition is an interesting example. So alcohol prohibition is introduced by a, one of the largest mass movements in American history. They amend the Constitution. It's a big deal, right? And the policy happens, and it's obviously a catastrophe, and it ends. And it's interesting. As far as I can tell, there's a really good history of this by Daniel Ockren. I think it's just called Prohibition. As far as I can tell, almost as soon as alcohol prohibition ends, no one ever makes the case for bringing it back, right? So someone whose daughter is run over by a DUI, you don't go on the news and go, we've got to ban alcohol. I think the difference... There there is a slight difference there, though, in that the the amount of time that alcohol prohibition ran from was within people's living memory, yes. whereas there's no one who's alive and making decisions now who remembers time before drug prohibition. I think that's right. And I think there's another factor as well, which is... So saying you should end prohibition is not about saying people should be pro-drugs or even tolerant of drugs, right? Anti-drugs views will persist after prohibition ends. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't like alcohol. I never drink it. Uh, well, I have like a glass of wine three times a year or something. I don't like it. I think it's a drug that makes people boring and stupid. <laughs> and yet I'm against alcohol prohibition and no one would find that contradictory or weird, right? One of the first things, Tonya Winchester, who led, was one of the leaders of the uh, Washington marijuana legalization campaign, said one of the first things she said to people is, I'm not asking if you like marijuana. 
I'm not asking if you want to use marijuana. You can hate marijuana and believe in the legalization of this. The question is not, is marijuana good? It's, is it a good use of our resources to put people in prison for using this stuff? Or should we tax it, regulate it, take it back from criminal gangs and use the money for good things? And I think there will be a persistence of anti-drugs attitudes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think part of the conversation about drugs mm -hmm. should be warning about the harms involved with them, just like we should warn about the harms of alcohol. And, and in fact, I, I think even more so, when you can actually be responsible and honest about drugs, you can actually give more nuanced and more genuine and more accurate warnings. Because, like, I think yeah, that <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, like people that can't. We were at, at this talk at Burning Man where someone was uh, a neuroscientist was talking to people at Burning Man, but even uh, she was warning about which things you, you shouldn't combine because they're definitely dangerous. But then she's like, well, I, and I can't really say which things you sort of can safely combine because then I'm sort of encouraging that. Like, there's still things that you just won't say because of this yeah, system. But, but when, <laughs> when there's just like the sort of the just say no campaign and they and they fill it with horror stories that are lies like you know if you just take this one thing once you'll ruin your brain forever and you'll never come back and then people hit a certain age and they go well hang on a second daniel in my class he took that yesterday he said he had a lovely time so is this, is this all of this bullshit and you go That's no 70 percent of that is bullshit and there's 30 percent of that is vaguely true or whatever whatever percentage but I grew but up now it all just gets thrown out Yeah, growing up in the 80s you were taught that cocaine it's, was as bad as heroin like you have no sense of scope because like cocaine was so big in the 80s growing up that i thought that was the drug you do it once and you either die or you're hooked on it forever and then len bias's death i guess led to yeah. that i watched that 30 for 30 about that but in, then in britain it was leah betts on ecstasy that was the one when i was uh like in the mid nineties, but I mean, even mm -hmm. even if you're pro legalization, you know that there are differences in 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 danger of all these drugs. And to tell somebody like if you do coke once is as bad as if you shoot a heroin once is and, like really and a there are weird... ways you can be safe in the same yeah. way that horse riding carries a certain risk, but you can mitigate that risk if you wear a helmet, right? Right. And if you get training on how to ride a horse, and you know when horse, and you learn when the warning signs of when a horse is likely to misbehave or whatever. And again, you can there are. But if you can't even have the conversation, then there's yeah. no... Yeah. If there's you, a couldn't, you couldn't get me on a horse for all the money in the world. <laughs> but, the, the, but essentially what you're saying, I was thinking as you were saying that, that you know, the World Health Organization in the 90s commissioned the biggest study so far of the, relative, of the dangers of cocaine. And uh, what it found was that addiction is rare and harm is rare. Uh, and the US said, if you publish this report, we will withdraw all our funding from the WHO. And so the report was suppressed. Somebody leaked it. So that's how we know what it said. But the, the, all that scientific evidence was completely suppressed. Actually, the UN Office of Drug Control, who are the main drug war body in the world, their slogan is, a drug-free world, we can do it. Which gives some sense of the absurd utopianism involved <laughs> informs these people. Even they had to admit recently that 90% um, of all currently illegal drug use is non-problematic, right? So it doesn't cause addiction, doesn't cause overdose. Doesn't, actually, cocaine is... Ra I'm, I'm not in favour of cocaine use, but cocaine is radically less dangerous than alcohol. It's just glorified nicotine. Yeah. It's like nicotine and caffeine are so closely related to it that it's crazy that it becomes this thing that's in the 80s was the thing that would just kill you like that was, was so weird though was when in portugal i went to uh a, the drug education lessons for 15 year olds right and these were kids who'd been born just i mean they were like two when all drugs were decriminalized and um i went there the first thing that was really shaming is they said oh you're british we'll do we'll do the lesson in english for you and all the kids spoke perfect english i thought <laughs> fuck we are so gonna fall behind you in the economic race but the second thing was <clears throat> It was really, it was really, it was quite even to me, and you can tell what my views are. It was kind of quite jolting. So what they do is, the teacher 
um, basically they put a scenario on like a, what do you call it? Like a projector. Yeah. So it's like a girl is at a party and she's offered some cocaine by a by a friend. Super <clears throat> cool guy. Exactly. <laughs> and they have this kind of class discussion about what should she what should she say? And some of the people say, oh, maybe she should try it. And some of the kids go, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And they have this long debate. And I was waiting for the teacher to intervene and go, well, clearly she should say no. And the teacher just never intervenes. They just have this conversation. And the teacher just tells them some safety things and some facts. So like, don't combine with alcohol. And then the lesson ends. And I was like, wow, that's... When are you going to tell them, you know... And she was like, no, 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 we, we... they're, they're not going to listen to us if we tell them just say no. They're going to yeah. think we're lies. If we tell them subtle safety messages and we empower them with arguments by which they can say no that they come up with themselves, that will be much more effective. It was very, very striking. Wow, that's almost grown up. <laughs> well, I was thinking about what you said, Matt, just one thing, that, that, that in terms of safety, you mentioned that it was obviously the death of a girl using ecstasy in Britain. Most, not most, sorry, a very significant portion of drug-related deaths under prohibition are actually the result of contaminants in the drug, right? So obviously you can't have health and safety inspections of the Zetas or the Sinaloa cartel or the Crips and the Bloods, right? In the way that we obviously inspect Smirnoff and Heineken. Under alcohol prohibition, enormous numbers of people died of alcohol poisoning. In one incident in Wichita, Kansas, 500 people got such severe alcohol poisoning that they were hospitalized. And that was not regarded as unusual, just a random event. Huge numbers of people got very ill and huge numbers of people died way above the normal level of, obviously alcohol contains toxicities anyway. So if you think about heroin, one of the things they discovered when they legalized heroin in Switzerland and also in, um, when they had an experiment about this in, in the north of England in the 80s was loads of the things we associate with heroin use, like abscesses, wounds, have nothing to do with heroin use. If you use legal heroin, no one gets an abscess using legal heroin with sterile needles. It's all the impurities. It's the impurities. It's because it's a fuck, you know. I mean, loads of people Dirty died. Dirty needles and... Exactly. Loads of people died in Scotland uh, not so long ago, a couple of years ago, because there was uh, the heroin they used was contaminated with anthrax. You do, you do, but there are much more common contaminants that really destroy your veins, ruin you. Um, this is not to say, of course, heroin suppresses breathing if you use too much of it. So there are real heroin risks associated, real health risks associated with heroin itself. But a very significant, and again, you get this, um, it's very interesting, some politicians are challenged on this. And sometimes you get politicians who say there was a debate about this recently in, in um, Western Europe about, there are now, for example, there are fairly reliable safety testing kits for ecstasy. Right. People can use MDMA, you can test it to see for certain... Im- common impurities i've seen i've seen them uh i've seen like demonstrations that are being used and they sort of it shows up what it shows up how much of it is mdma how much of it is like mda mma and other similar whatever uh, similar chemicals UFC, and how much is other stuff like various yeah, yeah. leagues and uh but and then you hear all the same arguments about well this is encouraging people to do ecstasy which is very similar to the arguments the moral Arguments you hear against giving people good sex education as kids, or and condoms, like, condoms. They're, they're, yeah, or that argument we had the about the um, <laughs> it is Truvada, isn't it? The uh, yeah, the uh, oh, yeah, 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 which yeah, we yeah. talked about on our show a couple of weeks ago, where there are certain, um, I think the there are certain supposedly um, like uh, anti-AIDS campaigners who are campaigning against yeah. supplying Truvada to uh, to gay communities and to sex workers. Because they thought it would encourage risky practices and go, you fucks, like you're imposing so, your morality 
rather than looking at the evidence which show where you can mitigate risks. Don't you love the idea that teenagers won't think of sex unless we tell them about it? It's just like, have these people ever been teenagers or met a teenager? But I guess that is a thing I could use the shape of me for. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's but 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 you do get politicians who will explicitly say, no, we shouldn't have these safety measures. Yeah, I mean, Eric Sterling, actually, the guy I was mentioning who wrote the drug laws, said one time, uh, I might be remembering some of the details of this wrong because I didn't write about it, but if I remember rightly, um, Eric Sterling, had, that someone came in to brief them at the height of the AIDS crisis. I think it was about needle exchanges. Right. And um, one of the senators or congressmen, I think it was congressmen, said something like, well, if we don't distribute needles, all the heroin addicts will die. Great. Then we won't have any heroin addicts. Holy very, fuck. You know, it's very, I met Viktor yeah. Ivanov briefly, the, the Russian drugs are, and they basically have that policy in Russia. It's Russia has one of the fastest growing HIV epidemics in the world, and it's overwhelmingly driven by intravenous drug use, and it's incredible. They basically have a policy where if the police catch you with a needle, they will prosecute you for drug paraphernalia, which if you wanted to spread HIV, that's what that's you do, because it, it yeah. guarantees people will share needles. It's a cata- And Viktor Ivanov, this cold, I mean, he's an ex-KGB cold, dead-eyed motherfucker. You know, his attitude is, he didn't say it like this, but his attitude as I took it was basically, good, we don't want them. It comes back to that that thing we have to choose. One of the reasons why I wrote... Sorry, very quickly. We had we also had a story on our show a few months ago about the um, anti-overdose drug. And again, I I can't... Which a paramedic wrote in who listens to the show to say, yeah, it pretty much is like magic. It just works. Like it does... If you get it to them in time, you can stop a death from an overdose they won't be in a, it, it's not pleasant but you will they will live oh, there's and, an even even more significant naloxone is naloxone distribution is hugely important and has been promoted but actually an even better one which is it well, as significant I think which is the, um, a huge amount of the overdoses that happen in the United States are deaths caused because no one if you, say, say all of us were shooting up now oh. which for the notice of the immigration authorities <laughs> only Matt is um, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and, and you started to OD a lot of people are very reluctant to phone an ambulance yes. because people have been charged with murder if they've shot up with someone. Certainly you're worried that you'll be busted for drug possession, you can lose your kids. So huge numbers of people postpone a really long time or never phone an ambulance. Mm-hmm. They just drive the person to hospital and dump them outside. And in New Jersey, they experimented with something called the Good Samaritan Law. Really simple law just says, if you're with someone who's overdosing and you call the police, we won't prosecute you for using drugs with them or for having drugs, right? So really, so, and I forget the stat, but it massively reduced deaths from overdose in New Jersey. And again, that, I mean, who, who the fuck, who are these people who argue against that? And there are many well, of them. In yeah. It. yeah, but I mean, you were saying earlier, like the DUIs went down when marijuana came about. And if people actually cared about public health, that would be a thing that would get everyone on board. But it does the yeah. same way like Lyft and Uber have lower DUI, but they're still trying to cut the regulation. Yeah. Like if you cared about the actual end result of all this, you'd be like, well, it's worth it. It's and worth to be it. Fair, there is a legitimate are... debate about that, about whether you had more people who were driving when they were stoned because you don't have an okay. equivalent okay. to a breathalyzer. Um, for cannabis, you have to do a blood test, which is obviously very onerous, and they don't want to do. So, I would say with that specifically, I, the th- there's a more complex debate. So but get, co- sorry, what you say? Well, uh, maybe the same thing you were. Um, you, we started talking about you were saying that the way to the hearts and minds of the public isn't through uh, compassion for addicts. And, yeah, this and is you a, didn't get into exactly what actually what I was going to ask. The... You said what doesn't work on people's changing people's minds. What oh, has been shown? I think to... that does work, uh, but I think that an order-based argument about this is about bankrupting organised crime and making you and your family much safer yeah. is the most effective argument with the people who are not already won over. So if I was sitting down with an average person in Utah or Texas or whatever, and I wanted to persuade them, I would use the the panoply of arguments. But I think the order-based one—it's what worked so well in Switzerland. Um, it was a key part of the argument in Washington State. 
But I actually think the reason why I wrote Chasing the Scream is stories of people, right? And obviously a lot of this insight I hope is intermeshed with these human stories of individuals is because I think, this is a slightly wanky way to say it, but I think ultimately this, is, this war only continues because it's because of so much dehumanization. Mm -hmm. We've dehumanized users, we've dehumanized addicts, we've dehumanized drug dealers, we've dehumanized cops, we've dehumanized the people who live along the supply route countries. And I kept thinking everywhere I went, if any ordinary American could just meet the people I've met, if they met Chino, the transgender crack dealer I got to know, who's an amazing person, or President Mejica of Uruguay, who was kept at the bottom of a fucking well for two years by the dictatorship and emerges to lead his country to end the war on drugs, if I could introduce him to Bud Osborne, who was a homeless heroin addict who started an uprising in Vancouver that led to a complete public health transformation there, it's why Stephen Harper couldn't shut down the injection rooms because of the rights they won. I don't think any ordinary sane American would say, I don't care, their lives don't matter, let them die. I genuinely don't think that. So I think a big part of the challenge is to humanise people. Mm -hmm. Now, partly that's the order-based argument about humanising the victims of, you know, the violence that this is causing as well. But I think... I think that's an absolutely crucial part of it. Yeah. Um, Should I just say, as we wrap up, because I know we've got to um, oh, go yeah. in a second, but the, um, anyone who wants any more information about the book can go to www.chasingthescream.com. It's scream as in, ah, not cool. scream as in... TV screen. We were just, yeah, we were just about to say that. Uh, and the book is available in all the places books buy. Uh, books buy? In books all the buy. places books yes. buy. Yeah, and all the places where grammar they not have. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> um, if you want to buy, if you're buying it on Amazon, you know we'll what? put up a link on our website that goes through our Amazon link so we get a little... Do <laughs> you mind if we get a little bit of, a little taste of Fuck this action? You. <laughs> to skim off. It's like contaminants in the drugs. Yeah. Fuck you. Um, Do not go to their page. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's weird. This book is actually, it's, it's sort of 90% words, but there's like 10% anthrax in it. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Johan, yeah, yeah, where can our listeners find out more about you? Chasingthescream.com and also yeah. you're on Twitter at... They can follow me on Twitter at J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I-101. And there's a Facebook page for the book, which is facebook.com slash chasing the scream. And I'm sure there's, oh, fuck knows, I, 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 you should be able we'll to link this to, off. We'll link to all of that link stuff. Link to everything. Um, Hooray. And uh, yeah, as um, we, we recorded two episodes back to back, so we don't have donors to thank. But if you want to donate to help support us and keep us going, probably science.com and click the donate button and you can shop on Amazon through that. We will put up links to Johan's book and spread the word. Yeah. If you enjoy our show, tell other people. Subscribe if you're not already subscribing. Send this episode to your one uncle who uh, who still thinks that uh, pot is the devil's weed or something. Yeah. <laughs> Johan, thank you so much for joining us. Hooray! It was fun. Thank, thank, you, thank you so, so much. much. It, was a, it was a delight. Cheers, Matt. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Hooray! Yeah.